What a wonderful time of the year this is. This week coming up as we prepare to celebrate Easter together, as we pass again through Good Friday and we remember Jesus' suffering, we remember the price that he paid, it is such a wonderful time this week to pause and reflect. Uh, We have, as a ministerial again, um, prepared a series of prayer meetings that will be available through the, through the coming weeks, or pardon me, through the coming week. The first one will take place here tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, and everyone is welcome to attend. They usually run about an hour in, a lang- in length, and they're a very informal time of reflection and prayer together as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter. And so I would encourage everyone to attend one of the prayer meetings in this coming week. I'd also just like to inform you that there is a council meeting uh, for council members on Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock here at the church, so please take note of that as well. I would ask you now to bow with me once again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we enter into this week, this holy week, one that is set apart in remembrance of your great gift of salvation, I pray, Lord, that there would not be one of us who would take it for granted but that, again, you would imprint upon us and impress upon us the importance of what you've done for us, and that, Lord, this week we would take time to remember you, that we would take time to reflect on what you have done for us, and that, in return, we would give nothing short, nothing less than our complete selves to you in return, for this great gift you have given us deserves nothing less than our whole lives. And so we pray, Lord, that you would Work in us, your people, through this week. And now, Lord, I I pray that as we enter your word, I pray that you would speak through it. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would empower it and that the words would be yours. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, today is Palm Sunday, of course, in case you weren't yet aware. And I have a few pictures to show you as we go through this sermon this morning. Now, we traditionally focus on Jesus' famous ride over the Mount of Olives. And as most of you already know, I was uh, able to visit the Mount of Olives actually exactly a year ago. Almost to the day is the day that we were on the Mount of Olives. And so as we consider that day and we remember Jesus riding on the donkey colt with the excited and enthusiastic people laying down their coats on the road for him to ride over and their waving palm branches, shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. These are the things we remember, but one of the things we fail to remember is exactly where he was going and what he was going to do. But we know that along the way, uh, the crowds were shouting and people were flocking, and so this is the original sign, actually, that Jesus would have uh, looked at as he was riding into town. Is anyone questioning me yet? Okay, (laughs) a few heads are are shaking. Okay, this this isn't the original sign. I'm pretty sure English wasn't even invented back then yet. But this is the sign that we saw pointing the way to the Mount of Olives. And uh, the next picture, you will get a, a glimpse of what the Mount of Olives actually looks like. Now, in case you were picturing something a little bit more mountainous, something larger, this is what the Mount of Olives actually looks like. It's... Kind of more like a hill, maybe a, a, a sharp incline would be the most generous we, can, we could call it. And as you can see, it's not all that mountainous, but then again, we have the Turtle Mountains, right? So who are, we to, who are we to judge what their mountains are when we have the Turtle Mountains, right? So it was over this particular hill or mount that Jesus rode on that day into Jerusalem. 
And even though the picture fails to do it justice, in this next picture, this is the view taken from the top of the Mount of Olives looking down towards Jerusalem, and it's actually quite spectacular. In the foreground, you'll notice that this is actually a a massive area of burial crypts, and, and these are all out through the side of the valley. There's these burial crypts, and they go back centuries. You'll notice down running into the bottom of the valley is the Kidron Valley, And this is the bottom, this is where they would pass through, and then back is the hill climbing back up towards Zion, Jerusalem. You see the city walls there, and above that is, of course, the Dome of the Rock, the Golden Dome standing up, and that is approximately the area where the temple would have stood in Jesus' time. And now, of course, it will have looked very different when Jesus was riding towards Jerusalem that day, but I wanted to give you a sense of the landscape of what Jesus was riding over that day. And so here he is approaching Jerusalem. If you can picture in your mind's eye, in the place of the Dome of the Rock is a massive temple, much larger, much higher, much more magnificent even than the Dome of the Rock. And on this final leg of his earthly journey, Jesus knows that he's riding towards a hornet's nest full of enemies plotting his death. And in such circumstances, from a human perspective, we would expect Jesus to attempt to keep a low profile perhaps even attempt to appease the religious leaders in some way. But as Jesus rides towards Jerusalem that day, with the adoring masses shouting his praises, Hosanna to the, the, the son of David, and they're reciting the prophecies, here comes your king, gentle and humble, riding to you on a donkey, the colt of a donkey. And here we see this proclamation, anything but a low profile being kept. And so as Jesus is going forward, the the masses are shouting his praises, these faithful pilgrims saying, this could be the king, this could be the one. Jesus has something else on his mind. Because though he is the Prince of Peace, Jesus' entry into the temple on Monday was anything but peaceful. For where we might expect Jesus to keep a low profile, or perhaps to extend some sort of an olive branch to the religious leaders who are plotting his demise, he does the exact opposite. For when Jesus entered the temple that Monday, he didn't go to pat everyone on the back. He didn't go to tell them what a good job they'd been doing, doing what a good choir boy they had been. No. Jesus went into the temple that day to clean house. Rather than avoid the hornet's nest, it's as though Jesus went down and picked up the biggest rock he could find, and he saw the hornet's nest, and he lined up his shot, and he heaved that rock right into the center of it, and he stirred up so much trouble, the hornets are flying in all directions. Now, as we look at a picture like that, I know it's hard for us to visualize Jesus behaving in this manner. The humble, gentle, kind Jesus This just doesn't fit with everything else we know about him. To visualize him flipping over tables with a whip in his hand, driving merchants forcefully out of the temple courtyard. But scripture in all four gospels records this is exactly what he did. And he had a very specific reason for doing so. One that still applies to you and I today. So we would do well to pay close attention to this account. It was some 60 years ago, there was a great preacher named Peter Marshall who gave this vivid description of the scene that unfolded that day. It is early morning, but already the temple court is a bedlam of activity and noise. 
among the tables of the money changers, the cages of doves and the stalls of cattle, people are crowding about, chatting with their friends, selecting a dove for a sacrifice, getting their money changed from countries like Persia, Egypt, or Greece, getting exchanged into the sacred half-shekel of the temple currency. It's convenient for them. It's convenient to buy sacrifices on the spot instead of having to drag them from a distance. It's helpful to be able to exchange money bearing upon it the head of the emperor or a graven image and therefore unacceptable in the temple to exchange that for the half shekel. And so convenient for all and profitable to many, the the temple huckstering has become a recognized institution. Shrill voices, arguing, bickering, swearing angrily, the metallic tinkle of coins as they drop into the money boxes on the tables. All the signs of greed can be heard just outside the Holy of Holies. There is no serenity, no peace, no one can pray there. Suddenly, in the midst of all of this, there is a lull. Startled at the sudden quiet, we look up to find a strange yet hauntingly familiar figure standing between two of the gigantic stone columns. It's Jesus. His face is burning with intensity, his face magnificent in its wrath. As he steps forward with a resolution and firmness born of the terrible conviction within him, there is a look in his eyes before which men break away. His lips are drawn into a thin line. And stooping down, he picks up some binding cords, which the merchants have discarded. He deftly knots them into a whip. There is something in his attitude, in his eyes, his face, in that ominous silence in which he stands watching, which makes men look at him with an uneasiness in their eyes. And then the full fury of his wrath breaks forth. In a few long strides, he is across the courtyard, picking up the boxes filled with money, scornfully, deliberately. He empties them on the stone floor. Coins are spilling with a clatter, rolling off in a hundred different directions. Tables go crashing to the floor, and the money changers rush to gather up their coins from the filth. In their greed, made all the more frantic because of their fear, they grovel in the dirt, pouncing on their money, screaming in protest as the man with the whip stands over them. And then he goes further. He drives out the terror-stricken cattle. The muscles of his arms stand out like cords, light darting from his eyes. Not a voice is heard in protest. Not a hand is raised against him. Even the temple guards only stand and watch helplessly as the scene unfolds before their very eyes. Jesus, his magnificent figure dominating the scene, his voice rings out, echoing among the stone pillars, and sounds like the voice of doom, like the very voice of God himself. It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. There can be no doubt about it. Jesus was angry. Not with the sort of anger that flares up quickly and is gone after a violent outburst, but with the sort of deep-down righteous holy wrath that takes a very long time to rise to the surface, but when it does, there is no stopping it. Jesus' righteous fury was awoken, and just like when the floodwaters were unleashed in the days of Noah, 
No one could stand before his holy wrath. No one could stop it. No one even protested. All they could do was scramble and run for cover. But it begs the question, why? Why was Jesus so angry? Why was he so upset? What disturbed him so deeply that he acted in such an uncharacteristic way? What was it? And I want you to be forewarned that you might not like the answer. What made Jesus so furious was religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy. It was not the obvious sinners that infuriated Jesus. It was the obviously religious. And the epicenter of this all was the temple. Now the temple was an absolutely magnificent structure. In this next slide you'll see a picture of a scaled down model that stands of the temple in Jerusalem today. This is a recreation of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And you'll notice in the perspective that it's, it's gigantic. Look at it in comparison to the small buildings next to it. It dominates the, the skyline of Jerusalem. It dwarfed everything around it. It soared roughly 15 stories above the Kidron Valley. The outer courtyard was nearly 500 yards long by 400 yards wide, with enough square footage for some 48 regulation-sized basketball courts could be fit into that courtyard. It had become a veritable marketplace filled with stalls of sheep, goats, doves, and other animals for sacrifice. And of course, the money changers operated tables in and amongst it as well. And make no mistake that in one sense, we shouldn't condemn those merchants or look down upon them needlessly. They provided a a needed service. You see, pilgrims would have to come from all over Israel to go to Jerusalem, the one place they could give a sacrifice. They had to travel great distances and were, of course, expected to offer a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice at the temple. And these pilgrims found it in a certain way convenient, easier to purchase an animal there than to bring one that whole journey themselves, right? But what had started out as a convenience turned into a very profitable money-making scheme. The priests and local politicians maintained strict control over the franchises in the temple area. They demanded, of course, their cut of the profits, their share. And once a merchant had a corner in that marketplace, they felt free to pass along that money to the customers. They did as they pleased. Money changers would charge exorbitantly high fees to exchange regular coins into the temple currency. And if you didn't like it, you could leave. Because you could only do business in the temple using the temple currency. No other coins were allowed. You had to purchase the animals for sacrifice with the half shekel. That was the only currency accepted. And so the markup, the exchange rate, was steep. As was, which I'm sure you've already guessed, the markup on the animals as well. And just in case someone else might get the wise idea to set up a competing marketplace just outside the temple gates to undercut the temple crowd, the priests had that one covered too. Because before an animal could be sacrificed, it had to pass through their temple inspection. And so the priests would simply reject any animal that didn't come from one of their licensed dealers. Didn't matter how clean or pure that animal was, wasn't from one of their guys, sorry, something's wrong with it, little blemish there, it's not quite right. It was the sort of religion that had all of the outward rituals down pat, but it missed entirely the heartbeat of a holy God. 
In fact, it had gone so badly off track that rather than drawing people to God, it was actually pushing them away. It was creating a barrier that prevented people from knowing God and approaching Him. For rather than people being able to come into the temple to pray and to meet with God in a worshipful setting, they were instead confronted by all of the trappings of a legalistic religion coupled with greed, corruption, extortion, and hypocrisy. In fact, it was just a few days later that Jesus gave this scathing indictment of the religious leaders in Matthew 23.15. Listen to what Jesus says to them. This is just one of the things that he says to them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Whoa. Tell us how you really feel, Jesus. I mean, does it get any more blunt than that? This is what Jesus called the religious leaders of that day. He literally called them children of hell. And so there stands Jesus surveying all of this in the temple courtyard. Remember, this is his father's house. This doesn't belong to the religious leaders. He comes in, he's like, this is my daddy's home. This doesn't belong to you, and look what you've done with his house. And he decides that the only thing left to do is to clean it out. And so he does just that. And he drives everyone out. Drives them all away, but the place doesn't remain empty. I want you to take note of who they are replaced by. Matthew 21, 14 tells us, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. What a wonderful picture. This is what his father's house was intended to be. A place of healing, a place where the least of these could enter and meet with God, receive his touch, and find healing and hope. What a wonderful picture. Verse 15 goes on, But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. I want you to mark this down. Remember this. Jesus cleaned house in the temple of what didn't matter to make room for what did matter. He cleaned the way out for sinners to meet with God, and in a few short days, the temple veil would be torn from top to bottom to forever keep the way open. Jesus cleared the way for this to happen. Jesus cleaned out all of the self-important prideful hypocrites to make room for the meek and the humble and the lowly. Jesus drove out the rich merchants and the politicians and the religious leaders to make room for the blind and the lame and children. Are you seeing the picture emerge here? Jesus silenced the noise and the clamor of religion to clear space for the heartfelt praise and worship of children with pure hearts. Isn't this a beautiful picture? It's how God has always intended it to be. But let me ask you, where is God's temple today? What is God's dwelling place in the age in which we live? The temple in Jerusalem, it's long gone. It was destroyed shortly after Jesus' life. So where is God's dwelling place today? Where is his temple? Is it this building? Is it this structure we're in? It sure has a lot of parallels, doesn't it? 
After all, it's a place of worship. It's a place we come to pray and to give to God. But this structure, this building right here, is not God's temple today. It's not. It serves as a house of worship, yes, but it's not his temple. Then what is? You are. You are God's temple. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Then later in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul repeats himself. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You see, my friends, the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, God's Holy Spirit, who does the saving work, the regenerating work. It's all his work. He comes in. He enters our our hearts, our minds, our souls, and he takes up permanent residence. If you are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit lives within you this very moment, right now. You're sitting there as a temple of the Most High God, making you none other than his dwelling place. His Holy of Holies is you. And make no mistake about it, He comes not just to visit, but to abide. He comes not to merely improve our lives. He comes to flip them upside down, to clean house of all of the sin that no longer belongs, to get rid of all of the junk and the clutter in order to make room for none other than himself and his holiness. But there's a problem. Just like the religious types in Jesus' day, we too start adding things here and changing things there. We start to rearrange the furniture back to our liking. We make up new rules because we think they're really good ideas. They sound good to us. We even start to believe that it's our good works that makes us right with God rather than a gift of His grace and His grace alone. We start to sin in little ways And we justify it by saying, well, it's not so bad. Others are doing worse. And before we know it, we can be living the life of a religious hypocrite. We might show up to a worship service. But living a life of worship? Ah, forget about it. Of course, we still expect others to love us, but loving others? That's too hard. We still desire God's forgiveness for ourselves, but that so-and-so sure won't get mine. We still expect the church to serve my needs my way, but to serve others and meet their needs their way, that's not my job. And so at what point does Jesus look into the temple that is our lives and say, enough, it's time to clean house. So let me ask you, If Jesus were to stand on the threshold of your life right now, as he stood on the threshold of the temple, and he surveyed the scene of what's going on in your heart, mind, and life right now, this very moment, what is in your temple that would be the very first thing that Jesus would throw out? Right now, today, what is the first thing that he would look at and say, this does not belong in my house? This does not belong in the temple of the Most High God. What is the first thing that Jesus would throw out? Is it greed? You just can't get enough and are never content with what you have? Is it pride? 
You just can't help but think you're the greatest and in the process looking down your nose at everyone else. Is it lust? Perhaps you've been thinking, dwelling on someone in a way that you know you shouldn't be. Maybe you're dabbling with internet pornography or some other vice in this category. Jesus says it does not belong in my Father's house. It does not belong in the temple of the Most High God. Get it out of here. Do whatever it takes. It has to go. Is it criticism or gossip? Where you just know what so-and-so did and how they should have done it differently. And I know I shouldn't be telling you this, but I know you can keep a secret. And did you hear what so-and-so did? And on and on it goes. And where it stops, nobody knows. But in its wake is carnage and broken relationships. It's got to go, Jesus says. It has no place in my house. Is it selfishness? Where it's all about you and the world should adapt to your orbit accordingly. Maybe it's just busyness and noise. Like the clamor of the market. Not everything that keeps us from God is inherently sinful. In fact, we can be busy with a lot of good things. But our schedule is so packed we have no room left for God. No room left for time with him in prayer and worship. Because remember what Jesus said, My Father's house will be a house of prayer. And if our bodies are now his house, his temple, then they should be characterized by prayer. A house of prayer. Whatever Jesus wants to clean house on in us, in this body, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Give Jesus full permission today. And while you're at it, why not ask him which table should get flipped first and join in and help him out. Let's get these things out of here that no longer belong in the house, the dwelling place of the Most High God. Jesus comes to clean house of all that doesn't belong so that he can replace it with that which does belong. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, self-control. He comes to replace it with a life of love and service and compassion. A life that is dedicated to pointing others to this same God who has redeemed them in such a way that everyone can't help but sit up and take notice. That person has been with Jesus. Jesus has cleaned house in their heart, in their life, in such a way that all that remains is himself. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Is that your profession today? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's no room for anyone else, my friends. There's no room for anything else. Whatever the junk is, whatever the stuff is, the clutter, let Jesus get rid of it. Give him permission today. Let him clean it out as we head towards Easter. And may we enter into this with clean hearts, clean minds, and clean lives, ready to worship and to be used by God for the hope and healing of many. Father God, your word is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts through, Lord, to the very hearts and thoughts of men, our very motives that we hide deep within. Lord Jesus, you could look at the clamor, the noise that day of all this religious activity and you saw it for what it was, hypocrisy, an outward show for men with hearts far from God.
And so, Lord, as you stand here today, we believe you are here. This is not theoretical. You are in our midst where two or three are gathered. You are here. Lord, as you stand on the threshold of this church and of each of our lives individually and you survey the scene, what do you see, Lord? What is in me that has to go, that has no place in the temple of God? Oh, Lord, whatever that is, whatever you have convicted hearts of this morning, I pray that we would say, Lord, take it out. Get rid of it. Clean house in me so that you can take up residence fully, completely. That we wouldn't tuck you in a corner, but that you would be on the throne and in complete control of our lives. For your glory we pray it. That, Lord, as we enter this holy week, that you would do business with us. You would clean house that we could receive you and follow you fully with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.